Hello and welcome to Travels Through Time, the podcast made in partnership with Colourgraph. This week, we'll be travelling back to the tumultuous streets of Elizabethan London. In this special episode to launch season five, we are travelling back to Elizabethan England to witness one of the most mysterious events in literary history, the death of the playwright Christopher Marlowe in 1593. At this point, Marlowe was the toast of London, with thousands flocking to the playhouses to see the Jew of Malta, Dr Faustus, and Tamburlaine, among his other works. But writing was not his only source of income. He was also deeply involved in espionage, entrenched in the murky information networks that underpinned the vicious factions jostling for power at Elizabeth's court. Our guide on this perilous journey is one of the world's great historians. Stephen Greenblatt is John Cogan University Professor of the Humanities at Harvard University, a world expert in the works of William Shakespeare. He is the author of many groundbreaking academic studies, including The Swerve, for which he won the Pulitzer Prize. A few days ago, Greenblatt took me back on a travel through time. I'd like to welcome you to Travels Through Time, Stephen Greenblatt. Uh, We're really honoured to have you on today. Thank you, Violet. Um, Before we start to talk about your chosen year, I would like to ask you a general question about your writing, because obviously as a leading academic, you've written many serious intellectual books, but you have also written books for a popular audience, namely The Swerve, for which you won the Pulitzer Prize. And I just wondered if you could tell us a bit about the difference between writing those kind of books. Is there a big difference? I don't find the difference particularly compelling, uh, though there are differences. I wrote quite a few books uh, for an academic audience in which you can uh, use a certain kind of shorthand. Uh, But the arguments are fundamentally, in my case, the same. So in other words, I I never felt I first of all, I always felt in the in the books that I wrote for an academic audience that I had a a story to tell, so it happens to be my mode anyway. I mean, from the my PhD dissertation on Sir Walter Raleigh, on through uh, books like Hamlet and Purgatory and so forth, I always felt I was trying to reach my readership with a with a, a story. On the other hand, you can use, as I say, a kind of shorthand. You don't have to explain who whoever Descartes was. But I always hated in class when I was a student. I always hated pe- teachers who said. It was, of course, Descartes who said, because the of course always threw me off because I'd never heard of him before. So it wasn't actually that difficult to, for me to make the transition. The, what I most remember is my editor when I was writing Will in the World, the first book that I wrote that was meant for to reach a, a broader readership. She said to me once that I had a tendency to say, to write, we don't know when Shakespeare first got to London. And she said, who exactly is this we? I set me back a little bit. I realized, of course, it's a kind of uh, collective 
academic community or slightly defensive strategy, but you can't write, I don't know when Shakespeare first came to like <laughs> an idiot. I had to find slightly different ways of, of writing that kind of sentence, the, the kind of sentences that academics write when they wrap themselves in the mantle of their collective authority. And so I was actually happy to give that up. Uh, I just had to think about it, what the alternative would be. And that is the problem, isn't it? When you are writing history, you, you have to be very, very careful about sounding too definite about something which you actually cannot be 100% sure of. So you find yourself using, you know, saying things like Shakespeare may have learned this at school and, and, and then it can, it can sort of ruin the, or it can become a bit noticeable in, and stop the flow of the, of the narrative, I think. Yeah, that's true enough. I mean, on the other hand, if you asked me what I did a week ago, I actually uh, couldn't speak with the kind of certainty that one pretends to have about things that happened 400 years ago. Pretending that we all know exactly what happened uh, is ridiculous when we think about our own lives. Yeah, sometimes I feel like it would be easier to just put a disclaimer at the beginning of any history book saying, of course, we can't be sure, but this is my, these are my ideas on what could have happened. And, and that brings me on to um, the whole um, the way that you write his, uh, history and the use of your imagination alongside your historical knowledge. And I wondered how, how that works for you um, and, and if you could tell us a bit about the process of gathering. It, I mean, if we take the example of Will in the World, there's very few facts, hard facts that we have about William Shakespeare's life. But you wrote this um, fascinating biography by taking information from other areas and building using these small clues that we have. You also need to use your imagination. And I wonder how you see the role of imagination in academic and, and serious history. I, th I do think that that idea that you keep the imagination waiting at the door or outside of anything you write is First of all, it's ridiculous. It, it's, it can't be done. It was, has never been done, even by uh, the, uh, the great German historians who wanted to, to tell the story of history via Eigenlichkeweisen, as they said, how it actually is. But uh, there's no way of doing that successfully in any case, no way of creating the feeling of that unless you use your imagination. So that's the first thing to say. Second thing, I've always found it absurd, uh, particularly among literary academics, the notion that the very thing that they love, that draws them to uh, the work in the first place, which is the power of the imagination, the force of narrative, the, the power of storytelling, the thing that they've adored, it doesn't have to be straightforward storytelling, the thing they've, they adore in James Joyce or, or Marcel Proust, they have somehow to throw away when they uh, sit down and try to write themselves. So I've tried, and this was true in, in my most, uh, how should we say, official uh, academic books, mm -hmm. uh, as well as in books for a broader public. I've always tried to use those qualities that, that make the game worth playing in the first place. Yeah, when it's done well, I think it can be um, really inspirational um, for a historian, I, uh, you know, can really kind of give you, a, I mean, it's all a version of what happened, isn't it? And I suppose, they just, uh, novelists just use more license and more imagination than historians do. And I, I think a lot of 
children at school um, find Shakespeare difficult when they're reading it because of course the, you know the, the plays I mean are supposed to be performed and I wonder if performance had ever been a part of your relationship with Shakespeare I did hear a rumor that when you were in Cambridge on a Fulbright scholarship you were part of the Footlights um, so well, as a kind of fellow traveler in the Footlights my very good friend uh, my remain good friends with Eric Idle who was then the president of the Footlights, I think made some kind of arrangement where, where people who weren't actually very funny and very gifted as actors could uh, nonetheless go to the smokers and participate in a, in a small way. So yeah, I love that. Uh, that was lots of fun. That I was in the moment with, in, with lots of things swirling around with, with Eric and with Clive James and Jermaine Greer. And there was lots of, of uh, life. Yeah, it must have been an amazing time to be studying in Cambridge. And so did you have you ever performed any Shakespeare plays? Have you ever been involved in that side of it or, or not? Only in an exceedingly modest, <laughs> small uh, way. I mean, on, uh, and not very recently, but I do uh, participate in performance all the time through my classes with my students and also hamming it up uh, as a lecturer and... and uh, <laughs> Uh, but I, my, I have very often, both at University of California at Berkeley, where I taught for many years, and at Harvard, where I've now taught for many years, I have had marvelous uh, student actors. I, I used to think that there was a kind of uh, fairly clear line between the performance of Shakespeare and the study of Shakespeare, but I have lost that sense. I now think that they're quite uh, deeply uh, interrelated. And so I often have my students perform. I often learn from my students' performances as they do. And they're often brilliant. Well, I think uh, now I'm going to ask you the question we ask all of our um, guests, which is, of course, if you could visit a year in history, go back in time, which year would it be? Well, at the moment, there are many such years, but at the moment, Violet, <laughs> uh, I am fascinated by 1593 in England which is actually before most of the things that we care about that Shakespeare wrote. Shakespeare in 1593 was at a still fairly early stage in his writing life. He was probably writing Titus Andronicus. He might have had Richard III on his desk, but the plays for which we now uh, celebrate him uh, are for the most part in the future. But 1593 is for me a, a, an astonishingly interesting year. Can you give us a bit of background? So Elizabeth I is, is still on the throne, but is nearing the end of her reign. She's quite an elderly woman at this point. She's still, the succession is still a huge question and a huge source of concern for people. Just a few years before the threat of the Armada has, has disappeared. But there's still this feeling of paranoia and uh, worry about the Spanish and about Catholics. And then in addition to that, in London in particular, there's a lot of there's been a lot of Protestant immigration. So can you set the scene for us and describe what it, what would it have been like to be William Shakespeare, you know, moving up to London, living and starting his career in London at this time? The, well, the first thing to say that I want to say, Violet, is to take exception to your idea that Queen Elizabeth was an elderly woman in uh, 1593. She was. Sixty years old, but in those days, that was quite elderly, wasn't it? I, not, not it was actuarially elderly. That is to say, if you were calculating the likely 
good of survival. She was well along in years, but that was true when you were 40. That I want to say that, okay. you know, because of my own age, I'm going to say, well, that's not so incredibly old. No, no, no. I, I stand corrected. I stand corrected. But it's true that if you were, <laughs> if you were living at the time, you and you were worried about, as you should have been worried about the succession issue because she hadn't named a successor, you would think, my goodness, what is going to happen when she dies? Uh, and it is absolutely true that that uh, it, this was very much on people's minds in uh, 1593 uh, with a high level of anxiety, though she managed actually to live for another decade, uh, which was, as you say, actuarially unusual uh, in the time. 1593, for if you were imagining Shakespeare coming, being in London, he, is, he had already been in London for uh, some time. Uh, we don't know exactly how long. He would certainly have looked around and he would have seen an extreme, extremely lively theater scene. Uh, that's say already the theaters were, uh, the, pu the public theaters uh, were extremely active and drawing large crowds and producing many plays. How many were there at that time, roughly? How many theatres were there? Well, you know, it depends on how you count these theatres. Are we, are we including small venues where they were in, in yards and so forth and so on? So, I mean, you know, we could say that there, it's only, it's a London phenomenon. There are many fewer uh, venues. I mean, there are places that companies traveled and performed outside of London, but in London, where we're talking about, in terms of major houses, uh, depending on how you count them, four or maybe five. Okay. Okay. Uh, but we're talking about theaters that could bring two, two or three thousand people into their precincts, so they're large in a in a city that has uh, perhaps two hundred thousand people uh, in it. So they're they're the, it, it's amazing to have them at all. But then there are other lots of other entertainment. And I think that the, the reason I'm uh, being cautious about counting is that. There is a broader, because we care about the theater, we tend to, to narrow the scope, but there are bear baiting and bull baiting, yeah. archery <clears throat> contests and all kinds of public activity that, including public executions that, that from a certain perspective could be counted as collective popular uh, theater, however ghastly some of them seem. Um, and I think that Shakespeare would have grasped this, but he would have also seen uh, that there was one enormous figure, someone he knew in whose work was in effect dominating, but not uniquely, but uh, dominating the, the boards. And that was his exact age contemporary, Christopher Marlowe, uh, who had already in 1593 uh, actually written and had produced uh, a succession of astonishing plays, far more impressive than anything Shakespeare at that point had uh, penned. And so, if you if if we were to imagine Shakespeare looking around, he would uh, and thinking about who his peers and competitors were. I mean, Marlowe would have stood out. There would have been others: Thomas Kidd, uh, Thomas Lodge, Robert Greene. I mean, Thomas Nash, and so forth. Many others. But, but the preeminent one was Marlowe. But in 1593, something else would have been in Shakespeare's mind. In January of 1593, at the Rose Theater, which was one of the major public venues, 
we happen to know what was being put on. I'm using the we. We have. I happen to know what we put on uh, because uh, the great theatrical entrepreneur Philip Henslow kept a diary in which he uh, recorded uh, what he was uh, producing and what the take was uh, for in at the box office. And by the way, the idea of the box office itself is a relatively new idea. I mean, uh, because the theater had only uh, recently come up with uh, this notion that you wouldn't simply go around passing a hat at the end of the performance, but you'd have a box where people would actually put money in uh, when they arrived. And that actually has big and interesting consequences, but we'll put that aside. Yeah. Um, at the Rose Theater in January 1593, the play that had the single biggest take uh, was Marlowe's Jew of Malta. Other plays that were put on uh, then included another play of Marlowe's, The Massacre at Paris, which was about the St. Bartholomew's Day Massacre, uh, and then Kid's Spanish Tragedy, and then a play that Henslow lists as Harry the Sixth, which is, uh, we can assume Henry the Sixth, probably Henry the Sixth Part Two. So those plays are all being done uh, in January. Then in, on January 28th of 1593, the theaters are all shut down because of plague figures. Uh, the, and that began, a, if you were in the business, if you were Shakespeare or Marlowe, I mean, anyone who was actually trying to make a living doing this, this was a major event. But of course, it was a major event anyway, because it meant that the bubonic plague had returned with a vengeance yeah. uh, to London. And what the way it worked was that the public health authorities kept track of the, as best they could, of the uh, mortality figures. And when the death rates went up above uh, 30 a week, they shut the theaters down. And so, I mean, it's just so... All, all the theaters are close. All public venues, apart from churches are uh, church services. They thought God would protect you a little bit like people now think that, that somehow God is going to protect you from getting the plague. There are so many resonances with, obviously, with our current situation. Um, uh, okay, well, I think now would be the perfect time to go to our first scene. So can you, can you take us, I, I believe we're going to witness one of what is since become one of the greatest mysteries of Elizabethan history. So I'm very excited that we're going to be able to see what actually happened. We're, we're going to Deptford to a, a pub, I believe, in the company of Kit Marlowe. It's, it, it's, it's not a pub uh, in Deptford, but it's a, the house of a rather respectable gentlewoman named Eleanor Bull, okay. uh, but who served meals to people and may have put people up in her house in Deptford. Deptford then uh, was a thriving port uh, for the city of London, it's since silted up. Christopher Marlowe seems to have accepted an invitation to dine with a group of uh, three other men, uh, not just simply to dine, but to spend the day. They arrived, they, they uh, had a lunch together. They went out into the garden. There were, Eleanor Bull had a garden. Uh, they walked back and forth and smoked their pipes. The tobacco had, having recently been uh, become an addiction for uh, uh, Marlowe and others brought uh, back, or at least uh, 
popularized by one of Marlowe's patrons, uh, Walter Raleigh. Uh, in any case, they walk back and forth. They spend a long time in the garden having these conversations. Presumably, Mrs. Bull looked out the window and saw them walking back and forth and smoking. And then they come in for dinner and they sit down and then it happens. What happens? What happens? And that's the question, of course, what happens? <laughs> well, we uh, know what happens by way of the uh, by way of the inquest, uh, the testimony that was given at the inquest uh, later in the month. We're talking about an event on May 30th. And what's reported at the coroner is that after supper, I'm going to read from the coroner's report, after supper, the said Ingram, that's one of the four people who were in the room, Ingram Fritzer, his name was, and Christopher Morley, People always routinely get Marlowe's name in various different forms. It's Marlowe, Morley, Marlin, Merlin. Uh, uh, one of the things that drives one crazy in this record is the number of ways it can be spelled. The said Ingram and Christopher Morley were in speech and uttered one to the other diverse malicious words for the reason that they could not be at one nor agree about the payment of the sum of pence, that is, the reckoning. They, they couldn't agree on the reckoning. There, uh, the said Christopher Morlow lying on a bed in the room where they supped. So we have to picture the scene, at least the scene as, as reported at the inquest, is that uh, Marlow is lying on a bed uh, in the room. And before him are the backs of his three mates. Uh, Fritzer is sitting in the middle, and on the other side are Nicholas Skears and Robert Poli. What the inquest report says is that the argument continues. There's a, there's a setting of the stage. There's a table uh, at which Skears, Fritzer, and Poli were sitting. The point about the way they're sitting, or the reason that it's described in such detail, is that at least the jury was told that Fritzer was sitting in between these two friends in front of it with a table in front of him, which meant that he couldn't move. Move, yeah. Uh, one way or the other. And then the said Christopher Mar Morley, on a sudden, and of his malice toward the said Ingram, then and there maliciously drew the dagger of the said Ingram, which was at his back. So Ingram is sitting with his back to uh, Marlowe. He has a dagger. Uh, we have to imagine uh, England in 1593 is the Wild West, uh, where everyone walks around armed. In this case, uh, probably not armed in the full sense, but carrying daggers to cut their meat uh, yeah. for, uh, in the likeliest use of it. Uh, but the said Christopher Morley suddenly uh, seizes the dagger and with the same dagger maliciously gave the aforesaid Ingram two wounds on the head, the length of two inches of the depth of a quarter of an inch. Now, I think what we're supposed to imagine is that he was using the, the uh, not the blade, the hilt of the dagger, uh, to bang him on the head uh, in, in a rage. I mean, you, if you're holding with a blade and you want to stab someone, that's another matter, but you're hitting him on the head uh, with the heft of the dagger. Uh, whereupon the said Ingram, in fear of being slain, and unable to get away for his defense and the saving of his life, struggled with the said Christopher Morley to get back from him the dagger, in which affray uh, it befell 
in defense of his life with the dagger aforesaid to the value of 12 pence, they specify how, how much the dagger costs, gave the said Christopher then and there a mortal wound over his right eye of the depth of two inches and the width of one inch. Okay, so that's what at least the official report is what happened on this date at the end of May in 1593. And Barlow is dead. It uh, was buried in an unmarked grave uh, in the Deptford Church. End of story. But not, of course, the end of story, since there's been, as you already suggested, Violet, an enormous amount of ink spilled about what the hell actually happened in Eleanor Bull's house in Deptford on May 30th. And, and what, what would be your best guess of what happened? My best guess is it was an assassination. It turns out that that uh, I mean, it turns out that by a set of peculiar accidents of the sort that happen all the time, the name of the the person who killed Marla was misentered in a register, and so the document from which I've just quoted was not actually discovered until uh, the 1920s. Uh, because people were looking for the wrong name and uh, in uh, the records. And it was only then in the 1920s that a actually a, uh, an American uh, recently Harvard PhD student working in the archives realized the, the error that had been made and was able to track down in a fantastic piece of literary detective work the record. And then when once we, the names were recovered, Skiers, Poli, and Fritzer, the next step was to figure out who they were. The su surprise uh, was that all three of them had deep, deep ties to the secret police, to Francis Walsingham's, Walsingham himself was dead at that point, but to the, the, uh, the English spy service. And Marlowe did. So suddenly this seemingly random event seems less random. These are four people who've been working for MI6 uh, <laughs> and they're, they're sitting together on a, for a very long afternoon, doing what? Talking, smoking, maybe waiting. It does seem strange. It seems strange if it was an assassination that they spent all this time together before. Um... It is, and that, of course, that's part of the, yeah, I mean, if, you, if you're just gonna get them there, for lunch and kill him, mm. uh, you might as well do it right away. There's a very good historical novel called The Dead Man of Deptford uh, by Anthony Burgess that imagines that that they, it was, they were waiting for something, waiting for some signal, waiting for some word as to what they were supposed to be doing. Uh, and, and, and that's possibly what was going on. Or they were trying to persuade Marlowe something. Uh, yeah. So I, I wish I could tell you Violet, that I knew what was <laughs> happening. I don't. But it's extremely difficult for me to believe that what happened on May 30th was, was unrelated to what had happened on the preceding days. So we to understand that, we have to go back. All of, Let's go all the way back to the plague, the shutdown of the theaters, but also the shutdown of lots of collective life in England. England has, a, that year, 1593, a miserable winter, beset by bubonic plague, and then a horrible spring with terrible weather uh, that actually causes increasing anxiety because um, everyone knows England is living 
as many European countries were at this point, but England is living near the edge. If it has a good harvest, everything is fine. If it has a miserable harvest, people are actually going to starve. And the weather has been horrible. Uh, the plague is bothering people. As you said at the beginning, there's anxiety about a possible Spanish invasion. This is a, a country on edge. Mm. Uh, and on top of everything else, the nonconformists, the English separatists, religious separatists are uh, making noise that the archbishop and the rest of the clerical establishment of the, of the English church, the Anglican church, are corrupt uh, and uh, not adequately Christian. Uh, the people we subsequently we now call Puritans. But uh, the point is that we shouldn't all have to worship in the same church. We should be able to be separate. We should have separate uh, uh, and we should be able to criticize the religious hierarchy. So those people are beginning to make noise. So everyone is nervous. Uh, and then, uh, and the economy is miserable. Uh, and then on May 5th, so at the beginning of the month that led at the end to Marlowe's death, something happens. Hello, it's Artemis. At Travels Through Time, we're incredibly proud to be partnering with Jordan Lloyd and Colograph. Jordan is one of the world's leading visual historians. Through his excellent craftsmanship, he brings black and white photographs of the past to life in startling colour and clarity. Jordan's extraordinary work, as well as that of his contemporaries, can be found on the website colograph.co. At colorgraph.co, you'll be able to explore the process and history behind the colorization work, but most excitingly of all, you can also buy some of these beautiful photographs as museum-grade fine art prints. They make an unusual and striking present for that friend or family member of yours who loves the past, and they're an excellent addition to any room. Whether it's a colorized photograph of the US Capitol building from 1846, or a candid shot of the Beatles from 1964, you're pretty sure to find something that enchants you. I know I certainly have many times. It's hard to explain really over audio just how cool these prints are, so I encourage you to have a look for yourself at colorgraph.co. What's more, Travels Through Time listeners get 10% off when they enter the code TTT at the checkout. That sounds like the place to go to your second scene. Where are we and what's happening here? What happens on May 5th is that people wake up and they see a placard on the wall of a church, the, the church that's used by the strangers, as they're called, the foreigners, uh, Protestant refugees from what would be now called the, uh, the Netherlands and Belgium. Uh, they, England took in, it's all, it couldn't be more relevant, uh, how should we say, <laughs> uh, England took in a, a significant number of refugees, Protestant refugees, once the Spanish invaded the Low Countries and set up the Inquisition and began to burn, kill Protestants. Uh, the ones who could get out, uh, many of them came to England where they received protection from the English state and they settled. On May 5th, there's a placard that has a crude poem on it. And the poem says, your Machiavellian merchants are destroying our, uh, taking our jobs. You're, you're uh, starving us like the Jews starve us. There weren't any Jews in England no. at, that, at that point, but the, the rhetoric uh, still plays out that way. You're going to undo us all. 
get out, get out, or there'll be blood running in the street, leave our country, get out of our land. That's kind of powerful nativist voice, or we'll cut your throats. And the placard is signed, Tamburlaine. Oh. The state took this seriously, uh, very seriously, because they knew that, the, I mean, in general, the, the English authorities didn't like popular disorder, as authorities anywhere don't. Yeah. But it, uh, it sounded ominous and dangerous, threatening to kill their about 4,300 uh, strangers, uh, Protestant refugees in London. Uh, they're paying their taxes, they're living quiet lives, but there's and under the increasing economic pressure, in a way that should not surprise you or your listeners, they're under threat from yeah. a kind of nativist populist violence. And so immediately, and one thing that impresses me about this story, Violet, is that the, the authorities acted exceedingly quickly. Uh, the next day, uh, the day after the, this Dutch church placard goes up, the Privy Council meets and says, what are we going to do? And they issue uh, an order that says that the order goes out on May 11th, saying that their pursuivants, their police kind of, uh, their police force should go out and try to find who has written this, this thing and arrest them. And the following day, May 12th, a playwright, Thomas Kidd, gets a knock on his door. And so they come to Kidd uh, and they ask him, probably not very politely, if he knows anything about the Dutch church, uh, about the placard in the Dutch church, he says no, and they search his rooms. Now, there's a whole set of questions about this is about the Deptford scene. Why did they go to kids' room? I mean, the, the placard was written in such a way, clearly deliberately, to uh, implicate Marlowe. Why mention Machiavellian, which is a term that Ma Marlowe uses in Malta? Why mention Jew? Uh, why sign a Tamburlaine? It's all meant to look like Marlowe's finger, uh, fingerprints are on it. But Marlowe wouldn't have signed it. I mean, that, that's well, just... so, there, so I think that's correct. Right? I think that, the, that the, uh, the police are not often enormously intelligent or very literary, but I think the police grasped probably <laughs> that it was exceedingly unlikely that Marlowe would have signed a Tamburlaine. Since this is a, this is a, if you get caught doing this, you're dead. Yeah, this placard. So, uh, and also it was written in extremely bad verse. So we can maybe say that the police thought could Marlowe have written anything as bad as this? So that that it would be. Now that seems un, unlikely, I know, but you know it would be as if as if uh, a violently anti-immigrant video went up, and it was somehow signed, directed by Quentin Tarantino, and you. You know, the police were thinking, give me a break. Yeah. Uh, and so forth. So maybe something like that. Anyway, they go to Kid. And why they go to Kid is also an interesting story. We won't take the time to talk about it. Uh, and they search his rooms and they don't find anything related to the Dutch church uh, placard, but they found something. They found something, a document um, that deny that looks like it's denying the divinity that does seem to be denying that Jesus was divine. That's also illegal. And of course, this is a period in which there are no protections whatsoever. You, they are no protections that say if you have a warrant to look for the Dutch church, then you can't pick up another piece of evidence. They just pick up this piece of evidence and they say, what is this? And 
We don't know what kids said, of course, because they didn't take, they, they weren't recording their conversation. But what we know is that they took, they arrest kid and they took him to Bridewell, one of the London prisons, and they torture him. And the fact that they tortured him probably indicates that he did not, either he said he had no idea what, what this was and it wasn't his or whatever, but he didn't know who, who, where it came from. And in the course of torturing him, he, he remembered, let's put it that way, uh, where, the, uh, where it came from. It came from Marlowe. That, that was, he was sharing that room with Marlowe, his roommate, and, but probably several years before. And Marlowe must have left it there in a pile of papers he hadn't looked through. But didn't Marlowe already have a reputation for being a bit on the edge? of? Yes, Marlowe had been uh, already Robert Greene, the same complicated, sleazy, interesting character who said that Shakespeare was the upstart crow in no warn Marlowe away from atheism and, uh, and so forth. So there, yeah. are people, there are rumors around that. And of course, look, you just have to go to see Tamburlaine. You have to go to see the Jew of Malta. You have to mm. go to see Dr. Faustus to get that something quite radical is being put on stage. Yeah. Marlowe was walking on the edge yeah. all along. So they issue a warrant for Marlowe's arrest. They send a a, a persuasion uh, out to uh, arrest Marlowe. They take him into custody on May 20th. So we are talking about 10 days before Marlowe has that pleasant afternoon in Deptford. <laughs> in between uh, May 20th, when Marlowe is arrested, and May 30th, uh, when Marlowe has uh, the day with his pals, uh, there's a report filed uh, by another unbelievably unpleasant character named Richard Baines, uh, who files a report on Marlowe's monstrous opinions. And those monstrous opinions is a report that is actually written and copied uh, over for, uh, to give to the queen herself. Marlowe is reported as saying a set of unbelievably strange and shocking things if you're in 1593. And they're interesting. I mean, some of them are, are there, how should we say for, it seems principally for shock value, but maybe not. I mean, he says that Christ was a bastard, that his mother was unfaithful, that Mary was unfaithful. I mean, these are kind of canards that had been around for a while. He says in a way more uh, surprisingly that, uh, that Jesus and uh, St. John were homosexual lovers, uh, that he, Jesus used John after the manner of, of uh, the Sodomites. Uh, these are things you didn't say in, if, if, if Marla did say them in 1593, if you wanted to live a long, happy life. Uh, he also says that the Indians and many other writers uh, have records, or have not records, but have, have uh, uh, memories, uh, collective memories going back way before the so supposed creation of, uh, of Adam and Eve, that the world is much older than Adam and Eve that Moses was, was a kind of confidence man, a juggler, mm. uh, it's called, and that Thomas Harriet was, was, was much more effective than he. And so a long list. And of, do you think they were made up or do you think there's an element of truth? I have? think there's an extremely strong yeah, element. They're quite specific things. Not these particular terms, some of them, yes. But no, I think that there's, there's a considerable amount of, of uh, evidence, reason to believe that these are 
how should we say, shorthand and highly theatrical uh, versions of what uh, Marlowe in other ways yeah. had been. And it, I believe is, and, and I'm by no means the only person to believe that, that uh, what Baines reported uh, on in the report on May 28th is directly related to what happened to Marlowe on mm. May 30th. This is not a world of free thought. No. And the reason that that's interesting, Violet, is that, is that uh, it's interesting in itself, I think, but it takes us back to where we started, the theater and what the theater does and what uh, Shakespeare was up to, what any of these people are up to. There are very few, and in, in 1593, we have to imagine ourselves maybe not North Korea, contemporary North Korea, but let's say Iran or, mm. or the GDR, East Germany before the Venda. We're in a world in which there are overwhelming networks of spies and reports and also severe punishment for crossing any, uh, bound, any of the boundaries of free thinking of well and where religion was you know that it formed the structure of of life and the idea that you could have thoughts of you know disbelieving in it were, were completely an anathema so what we have to then think is how remarkable uh, a play like shakespeare's titus andronicus from 1593 is or dr faustus also about this time dr faustus of course gets his comeuppance he's uh, <laughs> Uh, but in the course, before he gets his comeuppance, he stands up before uh, 3,000 people and says, I think hell's a fable. I think hell's yeah. a fable. One of the things, by the way, that, that Baines... Molo said. So if you could take us to our, our third scene, the court of Elizabeth I, um, where she has, apparently her life has been endangered by her own physician. Can you just tell us that? story well the the background to this story is uh the most familiar uh phenomenon of uh monarchical politics and maybe of any politics but certainly monarchical politics which is ferocious factionalism there is in uh in and around the court of queen elizabeth as there was around uh, you know let's say around stalin uh competing factions uh who are in uh, competition, not only competition, but in murderous. Well, the stakes were very high. Was I mean, if, if if you got caught doing something wrong, as you say, you would have had your head chopped off. It wasn't sort of the stakes are high the other way around. I mean, which is to say that that if you could get close to the queen, if you could win her confidence yeah. and support, you were made. So the stakes are extremely high that way. You, you have figures like Cecil and Raleigh uh, and Essex all maneuvering uh, to try to uh, be close to the queen, to uh, win her confidence. And you get connected to that a world of, of espionage. Yeah. And espionage that's not simply domestic, but also foreign, because everyone's on the take. Uh, the, the Spanish particularly are putting a tremendous amount of money into espionage, as are the, the French. Uh, they're paying people off and people are taking money. I mean, people very close to the queen are taking money from foreign powers. This is the defense that this um, doctor, Rodrigo Lopez puts up, isn't it? Is that he was just taking money. So can you tell us about him? Because he's a really extraordinary character. Yeah, so the background of all of this is that 
the Earl of Essex, who was one of these factional leaders, is trying very hard to get his own intelligence network up and running. Cecil has one. He thinks that Raleigh has one. Uh, of course, Walsingham uh, had a great one. And he's trying to do, do that. And he, he's looking for some way of making himself known uh, as, as a key figure for intelligence in this period. So uh, in 1593, he comes up with what he thinks is the smoking gun, which is a, a secret correspondence uh, between two Portuguese figures uh, and the, in a rather complicated set of circumstances having to do with Portuguese power with uh, the Queen's physician, Rodrigo Lopez. The Queen's physician, uh, Lopez, had been in England, uh, uh, had been settled in England, uh, certainly from, uh, by the early, uh, by the early 1590s, he's a wealthy man. He has a nice house in Holborn. He sends his uh, uh, children to public, to what, what yeah. the English now would call Private public schools, schools fancy yeah. schools. Uh, his youngest son, Anthony, is enrolled in Winchester. Essex had been looking for a way of taking him down. Mm. Personal reasons, but also because he thinks that, that Lopez is somehow tied in with the Cecil and, and uh, Raleigh factions. And he finds a document that seems to suggest, that does suggest, that uh, Lopez is in correspondence, secret correspondence with these Portuguese and therefore also Spanish uh, figures, the great enemy uh, of the Elizabethan regime. Uh, and Essex is incredibly pleased <laughs> and excited. And he comes forward uh, precisely in this period, 1593, to say, I have the smoking gun. The uh, your physician, the queen's physician, uh, is plotting to poison Her Majesty, uh, and he has enough evidence to weaken the support of uh, Cecil uh, enough to get Ro Lopez arrested, and then he is able to say not only is Lopez uh, a secret agent of the Spanish, but he's a Jew. Uh, the Jew Lopez. Lopez actually was a uh, communicating member of the Church of England, but he, uh, he came from a Murano uh, secret Jewish. So it wasn't known that he was Jewish before Essex found this out. It, it can't have been a tremendous surprise. I mean, let's say uh, it maybe who knows how much it was known, but it wasn't a factor. It wasn't a factor because Lopez was a Christian. Yeah was a Protestant, not a Catholic. No, he was a good course. English Protestant. Mm. Um, I mean, that's true today in, 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 um, in much of Portugal and Spain. You dig deep enough, uh, you know, you'll find uh, someone with a, either a Jewish or Moorish background. Yeah, of course. Yeah. And the cause of much suffering and bloodshed. But in the, it, it wasn't a factor in England. England doesn't have any Jews. It's not worried about Jews. Yeah. But there's still anti-Semitism, though. There's anti-Semitism because it's, how should we say, hardwired uh, into the complicated uh, relationship between Christianity and, and its uh, uh, Jewish background. In any case, and Jews are good uh, as the uh, Jews are good to think with. The Jews are good to hate. Like they're like wolves. In in uh, the uh, long after wolves are exterminated, people still tell stories about mm. about Red Riding Hood. Yeah, 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 of course. They're, they're useful. 
but they but they're also you know very good doctors and um it happens that lopez was a good doctor uh and or is a trusted doctor in any case and essex is right not that he's trying to poison the queen that's wildly unlikely in fact almost certainly absurd but that he's taking money from the spanish or the portuguese that's exceedingly likely and that that is a story that if you pushed hard enough that's true you could find that francis bacon was taking money you could find that queen anne uh, the, yeah. the wife of james the 6th becomes james the first is taking money. Well, information. There. I mean, it was, you know, we think of uh, that we live in the information age now. But I mean, in those days, the political information was was so sought after, wasn't it? As you've said. It's the... In 1593, Essex launches himself into his most successful years, which also lead to his own death. But is is uh, uh, partly through this intelligence network that that uh, deals a defeat to his, not a defeat to Lopez, Lopez doesn't matter. He deals a defeat to Cecil. The Cecil, the Ce yeah, Cecil. Um, but Lopez, so Lopez is convicted and beheaded or something like that? Lopez is, is convicted. That was a kind of foregone conclusion yeah. once Lopez was put on trial. And Lopez was, was uh, sentenced uh, to be hanged, drawn and quartered. And be, be uh, on the scaffold, uh, he declared that uh, he loved the Queen uh, as much as he loved Jesus Christ. And the crowd gathered to watch the spectacle laughs. They think it's a kind of Marlovian comedy uh, in which the wicked Jew makes a kind of sly remark. Yeah, right. I love the Queen as much as I love Jesus Christ. But there's absolutely no reason to believe that. I mean, he's about to be. Of course. And weren't your last words supposed to be, you know, the sort of final truth that you could... True, Violet, but the said. crowd could also have thought his final words were trying to protect his son, Anthony, and the rest of the family. I mean, the, so, Right, okay. Uh, who knows? Uh, I'm enough skeptic not to know whether to believe anyone's uh, words uh, in quite uh, so confident a way. Yeah. Um, thank you so much. It's been so interesting. And I know um, that I, we could carry on... Um, for hours but but we haven't got the time so i have just one final question to ask i know your object to bring back isn't necessarily tangible more of an idea or something to bear in mind but if you could have picked something up or taken something from one of these three scenes and brought it back with you uh to 2021 what what would it be i mean i would say that the nexus of a pandemic and an exceedingly uh, dangerous nativist, anti -pop populist, anti-immigrant sentiment is something we probably should think about. Okay, that's a, that's a good answer. Too many um, echoes with the modern world, um, really extraordinary. Thank you so much, um, Stephen. It's been a delight to talk to you today. That was me. Violet Muller speaking to Stephen Greenblatt about Marlowe, Shakespeare and the rich, ruthless literary world of the 1590s. We're delighted that such a brilliant historian has been able to help us launch this fifth season of Travels Through Time. To read more about the events discussed in this episode, please head over to our website, tttpodcast.com, which has undergone a sparkling summer revamp. There you can browse our full catalogue of almost 100 episodes. 
Next week, Peter will be back with a trip to the Napoleonic battlefields. But from me, for now, that's it. Thank you very much for listening. <laughs>